All right, so I think it's recording. So this is, I'm Daniel Ruskin. I'm Kylie Dossie. So we're going to be doing our first episode of our uh, politics and policy podcast. Uh, Today we're going to be discussing the CARES Act, uh, the act that was passed to address uh, the economic issues from coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So I guess I just wanted to start by talking about, I guess, the motivation for the CARES Act, what precipitated it passing, what you know, when, what the uh, government went through to pass it, what the negotiations looked like, that kind of thing. So, right. so I guess like my understanding is that the CARES Act was the second act, right? That they passed. I think there was one that was before that was a little bit, uh, I guess, a fast response. Yeah. So um, see what that was. Yeah. So there was acts before this one, but the CARES Act is uh, the most significant by far that has been done. So CARES actually stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Securities Act. And this one was more so aimed towards helping out the workers and businesses and states deal with the economic fallout, whereas the previous acts were um, trying to figure out more what to do first before we start addressing economic stimulus. Gotcha. That makes sense. And yeah, I mean, this act is is really significant. I mean, it's billions and billions of dollars. I know look, we're giving payments like direct stimulus payments to people. We significantly expanded unemployment insurance. I mean, food stamps, uh, you know, SBA loans, and of course, billions of dollars to airlines and hospitals and all that. So it, it's a lot. It's really significant. Yeah, overall, it's uh, it's a $2 trillion package. And it goes like you're saying before, it goes towards a bunch of different things. One of the most significant things about it um, that you already previously mentioned is the stimulus checks that Americans are going to be getting. So it's that one time $1,200 a check and that goes towards people. The full 1200 will go towards people who are either um, single or um, are married with children. But um, with the children, it will be um, an extra 600 with each one or is it um, 500? It's 500, right? 500, yes. But that is for all children. Um, I believe it's under the age of 17. You'll get the extra 500. You'll get the full 2,400 if you are a married couple and then you still make um, under $150,000 per year. And then the 1,200 will go towards single people um, earning 75,000 or less per year. And then it goes down um, bit by bit up until 99,000. And then that's when you don't qualify anymore. That makes sense. Yeah, I think they they didn't want people who are, you know, making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year uh, getting the stimulus check. So that would be kind of a, a waste. So yeah, Although I guess one thing that you know, worried me a little bit at first was how much work is it going to take to determine who's actually eligible. But Because they're just doing it through the IRS and through taxes, I guess that's kind of automatic. Yeah, so So they were able to cut down a lot of the, you know, researching who would need this and who wouldn't by looking back at the um, 2018-2019 tax returns. And then they're also looking at who has received Social Security checks in the past, and that's how they're able to determine um, who is able to get it. So anyone who already received Social Security automatically gets a stimulus check. Um, but the issue with these stimulus checks is that there is a gray area on people like you and I, like in our age, who are college students, who a lot of us are claimed as dependents by our parents. I know that I'm claimed as a dependent by my parents because I do live with them when I'm not at school, but they don't pay directly for my school. They don't pay my grocery bills or anything, but I still live here. 
So they claim me as a dependent for the roughly like five or so months a year that I live here. And it's the same with my brother. We're not getting any checks from this because we're both above the age of 17, but we're also claimed as dependents. Yeah. So it, it, that really sucks because not only do you not get the $1,200 check, but also your parents don't get anything. They don't even get the extra $500 because you're right. You're in that gray area. You're above the age of 17. So you don't qualify for the additional 500, but you're still claimed as a dependent. So you don't qualify for your own check either. Yeah. I mean, my, it seems like a huge oversight. Exactly. Um, I think listen, my, uh, my parents still both combined are still going to get the 2,400 because I believe we make less than 150 combined per year but it's still um like they i've already discussed this with them they don't particularly need it so they are still going to give it to my brother and i which is very very nice of them because my brother and i do have bills and everything to take care of and he still has his job but i lost my job when the university closed so that's a whole another issue also we recently discovered as um uconn student workers that if you work for the University of Connecticut, your hours don't count towards unemployment. So with that, they can't look at um, my work history and use that towards um, how much I would need from unemployment. So I'm not explicitly approved, but I'm also not explicitly denied. I'm in this weird limbo area. And I was actually on the phone earlier with um, President Katsileas and Scott Jordan, who are in charge of all this kind of stuff. And both of them were kind of caught off guard. They, they claim that they didn't know about this, but again, it's another really big gray area. A lot of students are really suffering under the CARES Act. And I'm hoping that there are more stimulus bills that come forward to address what's going on with college students and people who find themselves in the gray area. Yeah, of course. And I mean, I guess you're kind of in a, a better, I mean, Obviously, it's a tough situation, but I guess you're in a better situation than other people because you, your parents are at least giving you some of that. And there are also people who won't be getting any of that money. And yeah. they have their own bills and rent for off-campus housing. And they're just really getting shafted for this because, I mean, you included. it's And me included, too. I'm not getting a check either. It's just, uh, it just seems like a big oversight for sure. Yeah, like I know that you live in um, a place off-campus, so that... That's another mm-hmm. real difficulty because I'm also fortunate enough that I happen to live in on-campus housing, so I'm getting some of a refund back. They said that they're doing um, prorated for a lot of universities, so they're going to um, figure out what funds that they have and then divide up on what like what level of housing you had. So I lived in a four-bedroom, four-person apartment, which is, um, I believe it's level six housing out of level seven. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get back a much bigger chunk of that than, say, my friends who lived in a double or something like that, like a stereotypical college dorm. They're not going to get back as much money as I did, but I'm also, I was also paying a lot more than they were for that. So, yeah, so yeah, it's there's no word on when that's going to come back either, which is also making a lot of students very nervous right now, because I know many of my coworkers and many just like my friends across other universities are looking for some way to pay their bills and they don't qualify for these checks. They're, they don't know when their housing is going to be granted back to them. And there's Mm -hmm. just so much uncertainty. And like I was saying before, future bills and everything need to address this uncertainty within college age students. 
yeah, I mean, it seems like we were just kind of left out of everything. We don't get unemployment. We don't get the stimulus checks. We don't get, I mean, we will eventually get a refund, hopefully, for, for room and board. I, and I won't because I'm off campus and I have to pay rent for the next couple of months. Yeah. But I guess hopefully these on-campus students will get a refund for some of the room and board. But yeah, you're right. That's going to take months to figure out. Everyone's right now is just focused on, I guess, you know, stopping the bleeding, so to speak, and, and you know, trying to stem the public health crisis when there's a whole separate economic crisis that's caused by this. Yeah. I think, yeah, we're just kind of left out of all the measures that are being passed to help that. Yeah, I, I definitely believe, like I was saying before, there are so many stimulus um, bills coming forward within both the House and the Senate. People are bouncing back and forth ideas, but I have not seen a lot of talk about what to do about college students. I've seen a lot about, um, I know that they just recently made sure that um, people who like I was saying before, people who receive social security already are still going to receive checks and they don't have to do anything extra for that. But there has not been really any talk from what I've seen. I've been like scouring like Twitter and everything for days to see if any statements have been put forward and nothing other than just concerned students and other concerned citizens across the United States about what's going to happen to college age students. There hasn't been Mm-hmm. Any discussions from any representatives or anything saying like we need to take care of them? It's we've been left in the dark, and it's very very scary because, like you're saying, we don't qualify for pretty much anything in this, and we're just kind of left to fend for ourselves. And it's fun because you and I are going into one of the worst job markets ever before. Yeah, and that's also very scary considering that all I mean all the class of 2020 are going to be graduating into a market that no one's hiring right now. Yeah, and even once you know COVID is is hopefully. Uh, you know, past beyond us, the the economics effects from this are going to last for years. I mean, a lot of businesses are going to have been closed or are going to have to cut their staff. I mean, it's going to be, we're going to see effects from this for years to come. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's just very scary because especially um, someone like me who I've always pretty much carried like one or two jobs. And one of those jobs that always made me the most money was restaurant business and everything. Like being a server, I some nights are good and then some nights are amazing with how much I can make. And that could possibly be gone for so many people and it's their livelihoods. I know one of my friends lives out over in Austin right now and she's a bartender over there. She can make bank some nights, but now she's left out of a job and she doesn't know if her job's going to be there when she gets back and she doesn't know what to do. She's like 27, she didn't go to college. She just always bartended and it made her so much money that now she's like, mm-hmm. should I go back to school? Like, do I need to go get a degree in something? Like, this is what I've always wanted to do. Just be a bartender and own a bar and everything. And now there might not even be a market for this anymore. Yeah, I mean, the restaurant business in particular is really hurting bad right now. It's, it's going to take a long time for that to recover. And you're right. I mean, who knows if that bar is still going to be open when when everything's done, are they going to have a job for her? I guess hopefully, you know, the, the SBA loans and grants are going to help I mean, those businesses at least keep going for a little bit, but it's not a cure-all and plenty of businesses are still going to stop and close their doors. Yeah. And so like, it's, it's scary. And even, um, even within their own state, we have so many like breweries and everything like that. Like those are big business um, within the state of Connecticut. Like even just within my town, there's two breweries and it employs a lot of people across my town. Like even people who just like, obviously like make the beer, but also the people who serve it, people who manage it. 
if they bring in food trucks and everything, like they all work together for this. And now it's very uncertain what their future is. I know that a lot, um, that Governor Lamont just said that restaurants and everything could sell off their liquor that was unopened before. And so they try and make some money off of that. I don't know how that's going to apply to breweries and food trucks and stuff like that, who now are just shut down pretty much. Yeah, I mean, they're certainly not essential. I mean, it, it's so it's it's not like they can stay open even to make beer, most likely, it's, unless they get some kind of waiver. Yeah. And unfortunately, it, um, the first company and a brewing company in Connecticut just closed um, late March, Hanging Hills Brewing Company. They mm. closed their doors permanently because of coronavirus. And I'm, I'm sure that's the first of many. Yeah. And I know that, um, like, a lot of places, like I was saying around me, like, a lot of places have expanded into having, like, breweries and wineries and all that around them. Like, one of the farms just over um, my town border just opened up a winery, and, like, they don't know what's going to happen now. They can't keep that running. They are still keeping the farm somewhat running, but it's a very just small farm stand. They're not going to make a lot of money as they normally do. and there isn't a lot of protection for them. The SBA loans can only do so much at a certain point. That's true. And I think a a lot of business owners have, I've been hearing that the SBA loans are kind of too little too late because some businesses have already laid off their employees. They've already closed their doors. And because this took, you know, longer than it should have to come through. And it's still, I mean, I don't even think loans have even gone out yet at this point. Um, And businesses are still struggling and they still have no way to pay their bills from now until, you know, the, however many more weeks it's going to take for loans to go out. So it's, but I think it is, it is a lot better than nothing. I will say, I mean, I think that the SBA loans in particular, um, I, I know they can give, I think $10,000 emergency grants kind of no questions there, like as minimal questions asked. And I think the loans are going to be forgivable as long as, you know, the businesses that they're provided to keep their staff on the payroll. Yeah. So hopefully once those kind of go into full play, it'll, it'll stop the bleeding a little bit. Yeah, so um, it's the SBA um, gave three hundred and fifty billion um, to a bunch of different businesses, and but the issue also is that it's all companies at five hundred or less. So that's the other thing. If someone maybe they own just like a small local chain around the state or something like that, like they can make still decent money off of that. But a lot of them already had to like close doors and everything. And like you're saying, it's too little, too late. Like. And also, they can only receive this for only up to eight weeks, which we don't know how really? long this only is. eight weeks? Yeah, which we don't know how oh, long okay. this is going to go that. on. Like, if we are anything like what everything is, like, saying right now with all the projected rates and everything, like, this isn't just going to be eight weeks. Like, this is going to be much longer, unfortunately. And again, I hope future bills really address this and hopefully continue the SBA loans. But I don't know, there's so much uncertainty. And I feel like this bill did its best to try to address as much as it could, but it also left so many gray areas in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is more just a stopgap than anything else, because if it's only eight weeks, they're going to have to revisit this in eight weeks, no matter what. Because you're right. I mean, even if we find a vaccine and, and a treatment right now, today, the second, I mean, these businesses are still going to be struggling. They're still going to have, you know, missed rent payments and missed mortgage payments, and they've laid off all their staff. I mean, it's, I mean, there are already, I think, over 6 million unemployment claims in the United States right now. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. I mean, it's, it's going to be much longer than eight weeks to recover. Things don't happen that quickly. 
Yeah, even with the unemployment claims, um, just within the state of Connecticut, they're saying that it's going to take up to five weeks for anyone to get their checks, which is very scary. Like where I work in the university, like a lot of the dining workers and stuff like that, they're lucky they had their last paycheck today, but that's going to be their last paycheck for a month, which is absolutely terrifying because. Some of them do make a decent amount of money, like chefs can earn up to um, like 20, 25 an hour. But if you're just a kitchen assistant who maybe just started there, like one of my friends, you're only making roughly like 13 to 15 an hour. So if you're already off, like living on your own, say you just moved to this area or something, that's that's not enough. And there's no plans for rent relief or anything. I know that they're, um, they've already passed like mortgage relief and everything. Um, within the state of New York, but there's no word on rent relief, which is going to affect so many Americans. Like just within New York City, two thirds of them rent. So that's like, it's very scary that they're not addressing that as well. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I think you cut out a little bit there, but I think oh, you're no. back now. But, <laughs> uh, no, you're, you're good. You're good. I think it's just the software. We're using Zencaster and it looks like it's it's not the best, but at least it works. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think, especially when you consider, I mean, millions of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, even families, I think it's one in four families making $150,000 a year or more are still living paycheck to paycheck. That was a Nielsen study. I mean, it's, it's not even just low income people. And it's, it's even worse for low income people too. I mean, people that are making, you know, that 13 to 15 an hour, uh, they can't last for a month or weeks without a check. Um, that's, it's, it means that they're going to miss their rent payment or their car payment. And they could, I guess, at least evictions right now are, are um, I think, suspended in the state. But it still means that people who were previously kind of on the edge and just, you know, surviving by the skin or their teeth are now going to be kicked over the edge. Yeah. And they're going to be put in a very bad situation for the weeks and months and years to come. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it doesn't fully address the cost of living also within a lot of the states, which was another issue um, for me with the stimulus payments and the SBA loans. It's not addressing the fact that like where we live is easily the most expensive state. Other, I think it was like we're like the third most expensive state behind like Hawaii, New York, and twelve hundred dollars. That's one month. That's maybe one month of rent, just flat out within the state, depending on where you live. And that's not like a one-time payment. Of that that's not enough for people who are going to be out of work. Just like speaking on like dining workers at the university, they're laid off until August. Like one month of rent for them, that's not going to make up for the four months of checks that they're going to be missing, especially if their unemployment isn't coming until the beginning of May, even if they've been approved of it. A lot of them haven't heard back from unemployment. I processed my claim and my claim hasn't even been looked at yet because they're the computers here from the 70s. They can't handle this kind of load right now. And then my friends who did hear back were told, you don't get anything. Sorry, like you don't qualify for your university hours. So just so much uncertainty during this time. And I felt like, like you were saying before, this is just to stop the bleeding. This isn't to address anything right now. And at this point, anything that's done past this point is going to be too little too late. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, you're right. The, the unemployment system, I mean, the, the benefits or the extension from the federal government is good. Um, it's better than nothing for sure, but the system just isn't meant to handle 6 million claims in the course of like a month. I mean, it can't do that. There yeah. aren't the staff and the computers and whatnot to handle that. 
Um, so I'm, I'm sure they they must be struggling, and especially considering that many people are probably working from home right now. So even if they had their normal staffing levels, they probably wouldn't be able to handle this. But the fact that they're working from home, or maybe not even working at all, makes things a lot harder for them too to process these claims. Yeah, even um, even just within the state, um, like I mentioned before, like it's always been a bit difficult here. I've heard from coworkers because um, normally a lot of employees at the universities because you can't. Um, you can't re- obviously not everyone can work over the summer because suddenly there's not thousands of students on campus anymore. Maybe there's just like a couple hundred who are there for like summer activities and classes and everything. So they can only keep so many workers and it's based on seniority. So after that, everyone else is already knows that they're going to be furloughed from May through August. And then normally people have a second job or they'll just collect unemployment during that time and just make do. And they've already, a lot of them have already told me that it's always notoriously difficult to get unemployment. Even if like the system already knows you, they know exactly when you're going to go. A lot of the times your checks are delayed. One of my coworkers over winter break, all of her checks were somehow sent to the wrong address. So she didn't even get her unemployment checks until we came back in January. So. Wow. Okay. That And you know, a, what uh, seems like a, a like small mistake on the part of the state means that that individual can't pay rent or they can't pay their bills for the month just because they sent it to the wrong address. It's a huge effect on the individual when, you know, a mistake like that is made. And yeah. Even I, though, I more of those mistakes are going to happen with, with the, you know, overload of the system right now. Yeah. Even though it was only like for a month, she was able to scrape by and everything, but like she was freaking out by the time that I'd come back in early January to come help out. She was telling me at that point that like she was already scraping and that like, just being able to come back to work, like that was going to be like her meals for the day because the university um, gives two meals a day to their dining workers. Like that was her meals of the day. She didn't have anything really left at home anymore. And just hearing that really scared me for her. Luckily she got everything back and she was able to make all of her payments and get groceries all on time. But it just gives me so much fear for other people who now have to wait until May, like I'm so scared for these people and like what they're going to have to go through over the next five weeks. Like she was lucky that she was still able to be like fed and everything through the university. But again, it's just, it's such an uncertain, scary time for everyone. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, the one silver lining to this is that, I mean, for one, I think evictions are, are suspended in a lot of States and even for, um, you know, People or even for companies that um, um, they can enforce debt and whatever their operations are not suspended, like collections or whatnot. My understanding is a lot of creditors, at least, are you know giving a little bit of leeway or more leeway than they normally would because of the crisis. So, I mean, maybe if you have a credit card, normally pay it off. You know, you might be able to miss a couple payments, and that you know you're still going to pay interest, obviously, which is going to hurt. But you know, at least you can hopefully get food. So yeah. I, I guess some companies are kind of doing that out of the cut of their hearts, but it's still. It's such a, I mean, it'll probably help someone get food at least, but it's still going to put them, you know, exponentially worse in their financial situation because now they're paying interest. Um, and again, like these people were, a lot of people were living on the edge to begin with. So any small, um, you know, unexpected expense, um, or, you know, what might seem small to other people can can push you off the edge. So yeah, it's, it's not a good situation. Yeah, even with um, the suspensions currently of mortgage payments and everything, if we remember back with Hurricane Sandy, they had to um, 
they also froze mortgage payments and everything for people across New England who were severely affected by it. And the issue was, is that at the end of it, most banks have a balloon payment after a three-month forbearance. Even after like everything that you've been through, they expect you to still pay everything at the end. So there isn't any word on like, if these mortgage payments, if they're frozen right now, like what's going to happen? Do you get another three months tagged at the end of it? I've heard discussions about that, but also like, are they going to suddenly expect you the second that this is over, like bam, pay three months? It's, it's frightening. Like there isn't too much discussion on that as well. They haven't clarified a lot of that. Yeah. And also for student loan payments too. I mean, more relevant to us, it's, I mean, student loan payments, I believe are, you know, it's 0% interest right now, or at least federal loans have been changed to 0% interest for the next couple of months. And I think there is forbearance in places as well. But I, I guess, like you said, like at the end of this, regardless of whether the payments are tacked on to the end or if there's a balloon payment, it's still just delaying the problem, which is good. I mean, people need cash flow right now. So delaying the problem is a good thing to do, but it's far from a permanent fix. Yeah. And then there also, there wasn't discussion about private loan payments. Like I, um, I have out two private loans right now so that, um, I can obviously pay for my schooling and everything. I still have to pay that every month. Like I can talk with them on, um, like suspending it for a little bit and everything. But at the end of the day, like I'm lucky I do have the funds right now to pay my interest payments because my interest payments aren't terribly big or anything. Like I can easily handle it, but what about people who can't handle some of these interest payments? Like my interest rate is like nearly 11%, which is insane compared to my federal loans, ones which are like three and a half. Wow. Yeah. I mean, also people, especially people who are in graduate school too, maybe, and they, they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans in addition to whatever their undergrad was. I mean, if people go to law school, I'm, I'm going to be taking out a lot of loans in, in the next couple of years. So it's, it's the same situation, except I guess, like you said, you're fortunate enough to be able to handle your interest right now. But when the loan amount is, you know, doubled or tripled, then it, it gets worse. Of yeah. Course. So, yeah, I guess uh, this might be a good time to, I guess, talk more about the, um, as we talked about the payments, like the SBA loans and then grants and such. Uh, maybe it's good to talk about the other payments, uh, you know, related to healthcare and healthcare supplies. I guess that's another important topic to discuss. Yeah, so that's something that personally hits home for me just because my mom is a personal care assistant at Yale right now. And like all the horror stories that you hear about, like everyone only gets one mask, like that kind of stuff. That's true. Like she literally has a plastic, like she has a plastic bag with her mask in it that she is forced to use for the last week or so because they don't have enough masks for her. And it's not even one of those like N95 or something like that. It's just a plain stereotypical like surgeon's mask that like you've seen people wear before and she's very lucky that she's not in the middle of all the action just because she is a personal care assistant she has her own patients to deal with and none of them have tested positive yet like thank goodness but I have another friend who is an anesthesiology nurse over at Yale and she's been freaking out for the past couple weeks because she has the one mask I mentioned before she's working hours on end on her feet she has full they have to wear like full gowns face shields everything and she's still scared that she's gonna get it because she's using all the same equipment every single day yeah i mean all these these like you know the n95 mask and gowns and face shields are just reducing the risk 
But if you're in a healthcare setting and you are, you know, being exposed day in, day out, especially if you're working on a COVID floor, I mean, you're probably going to get exposed anyways. And that's even without looking at the fact that we have, you know, a, a shortage of these masks and gowns. Yeah. And I mean, N95 masks in particular, they're not really designed to be reused. They're disposable. Um, the idea is you use it with one patient, you throw it out, you're done, or maybe like a couple patients. But the fact that now in hospitals and EMT, a volunteer EMT as well, so, I mean, we have the same problem, like on ambulances, hospitals, um, nursing homes, there just aren't enough. You can't get them. So you're right, you're using the same one all day and it's getting contaminated and you're just taking it off and putting it back on again and possibly breathing in all those, you know, COVID particles, you know, when you put it back on. So it's, it's, it's scary and people are getting exposed for sure. I mean, I think the first healthcare worker in Connecticut, I think was and probably not the first, but I think a healthcare worker in Connecticut was actually intubated and is in a medically induced coma right now, I read. Yeah, so um, the very first person to be infected within the state, luckily he recovered, like, thank goodness, but he was over at Danbury Hospital when he got it, and he, these healthcare workers are being put on the line, and, like, we're not doing enough for them. It's absolutely terrifying to hear all these stories. There are doctors and nurses over in Italy who are falling ill. And then the issue is that the more healthcare workers that fall ill, this whole term of flattening the curve, the healthcare capacity becomes lower and lower, the more and more like doctors and nurses, PCAs, even just all different people across the hospital, the more of them that get sick, the lower the capacity comes and the harder it becomes to flatten that curve. Yeah. And hospitals and, and on a good day are already hotbeds for infection. I mean, infections are spread all the time in the hospital. When you look at the idea that now a lot of patients are coming in and have it, the healthcare workers themselves have it. I mean, it's, I just, I feel like it's going to get a lot worse in hospitals. I think a lot more healthcare workers are going to get it and they're going to pass it on to patients unless something changes. It's, it's terrible. I mean, I know in, in the other aspect of this as well, what if you have a heart attack right now? Or what if you have a non-coronavirus-related you know, emergency? If you have to go into a hospital right now, into an emergency room, that's the last place you want to be. And you might actually get coronavirus just seeking care for a completely unrelated healthcare concern. Yeah. So it, it's like... The... That's... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, that's been another yeah. like huge fear just with like for me and then for so many other people. Just what about people who... Now they're scared to go into doctor's offices, but maybe maybe their um their back has been hurting for a while. And then later on, it turns out that maybe they have bulging disc in their back that they could have gotten taken care of a while ago. Maybe they have some pain in their knee. Turns out like it's bone cancer. Like people are gonna be scared to go to doctor's offices. Like you were saying, people who are having Real emergencies aren't going to want to go to the emergency room because that's the last place you want to be right now. You don't want to get infected, especially um, within places like that are being completely overrun by it, like within Fairfield County, within New York City, Seattle, all that. Like people are going to be scared to go to these hospitals because they don't want to catch it. And it's yeah. it's gonna not only are we going to see these coronavirus deaths, but we're also going to see preventable deaths because people did seek the care that they needed or also so many people just got kicked off of their health insurance that is provided by their employer people don't have health insurance now and although coronavirus testing and all that is now free under the cares act 
what, like you were saying, what about people who maybe they have a heart attack? Maybe some people have some other sort of really emergency. Not only do they not want to go to the emergency room, but they also don't have the health insurance to be able to go there without getting a huge bill that they now can't pay for because they don't have their job. Like there are so many consequences to what is happening right now that need to be addressed on top of all this. Yeah. And, you know, even people that do have health insurance. I mean, I think the CARES Act made it so that coronavirus testing and vaccines are free is my understanding. But what about the treatment? What if you get intubated? I mean, an ER stay or an ICU stay, that adds up really quickly. You could get a $100,000 bill or more at the end of that. Oh, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think hospitals can't, I mean, I'm sure some hospitals are going to be better with this than others. But if they have like thousands of patients that go through that scenario, they can't afford to be that lenient unless they get some aid from the federal government because then they're going to go bankrupt. I mean, there are only so many patients that you can treat for free before suddenly your financials start to fall apart. So, I I mean, I think think the government already did give, I want to say, $100 billion to hospitals. So I think that will help a lot. But, I mean, unless some of that is also passed on to the individuals in in the form of, I guess, you know, heavily subsidized healthcare, it's it's still going to have uh, very bad effects down the line. Yeah, um, like people who are already financially unstable now suddenly they have a hundred thousand dollar medical bill to deal with. Yeah, like the one hundred billion is like pretty much completely gonna be dedicated towards all of these. Not only like the cost of trying to treat people, trying to pay their workers, but also to get all the supplies that they need to get the protective equipment, all that. I know that overall was one hundred forty billion, and that. The 100 billion is going straight to hospitals, and then the other 40 billion is supposed to take care of like the PPE and all that. But mm-hmm. that's that's not going to be enough. Like we've already pretty much drained our entire stockpile of PPE, and I don't I don't know if all this money is going to be enough to handle the crisis that we're heading towards right now. Like we had time to prepare for this, and now just trying to like stop the bleeding right now like no we had time to stop this bleeding and stockpile and get ready for this but none of the precautions were taken so now we're stuck with all this and it's just absolutely terrifying yeah i mean i think at some point you can't like only you can't just throw money at the problem right if there are no masks to buy you can't buy masks yeah i know i think trump uh um i think invoked the defense production act or something like that to you know require big, you know, corporations with factories to create ventilators and masks and whatnot, which I think will help. But that's still, I mean, it takes time to spend that up. Like a car manufacturer can't start making ventilators today. There's a lot of work that goes into that. So even though that's definitely a good thing to do, I mean, it would have been better if we did this like two months ago. Yeah. And we knew that this was going to happen. And we were just kind of ignoring it. Um, and then maybe today we would have those ventilators turning off the line and hopefully, you know, being used right away or have those masks um, you know, have a, a supply chain in place to get them where they need to go. But now we're just playing catch up. And I think every day that it takes us to play catch up is lives lost, especially in New York City. I mean, I think the other day there were over a thousand deaths in just one day. I mean, it's it's bad. Yeah. So that gets into like the bottom line. Is this enough? No, like this is not enough to stop the bleeding. Like every, all this should have been done months ago. Like we had knowledge of this back in January, back in December, like the president was getting briefed on this. We don't, we didn't even have a pandemic team. We used to have a pandemic team. He fired them because he didn't see them as useful. This was 
Obama's greatest fear, actually. I was listening to um, some of his old advisors and everything, and they said that after Ebola, his biggest fear every single night when he went to bed was another pandemic happening. Like we were lucky that we were able to stifle down Ebola and nothing terrible happened, especially because the death rate of Ebola, like a third of the people who get Ebola die from it. We're lucky that this death rate is much lower, but we're also not lucky because we could have prevented all this. Like this was easily preventable. We, like you were saying before, we could have been creating the stockpile two months ago. We could have had everything all prepped and ready. And we also could have been keeping everyone locked down and everything months ago, but we didn't. We didn't up our healthcare capacity at all. We let people still travel around. We didn't try to contain this in any sort of way. It just spread like wildfire. And now we're trying to stop the bleeding and put out the fire. And that's not going to happen. Like, although we're doing our best efforts to flatten the curve and everything, like I was saying before, it's we're not going to be able to fly in it if our healthcare capacity keeps on diminishing because more and more doctors and nurses get sick because they don't have their protective equipment. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I think coronavirus is worse than Ebola because, I mean, I think Ebola in, in some respects was kind of self-limiting because, like you said, they die. Um, I mean, a, th- a third of people are, you know, a large percentage of them die. Whereas with coronavirus, most people, you know, someone in their 20s, like you and I, we might not even have symptoms. Or if we have symptoms, it might just feel like a mild cold or a mild flu. And I mean, now I guess people are more aware and they're probably staying home more and in social distancing. But even like a month ago, people weren't doing that. And thousands of people had this virus and were probably going around spreading it unwittingly because they might have not even known. I mean, I had I was a little bit sick with the cold um, you know, a month and a half ago. I mean, it, that could have, for all I know, I know that could have been coronavirus. And I could have given it to people because I just had no idea. I mean, I did stay home, but it's it's still, you know, not perfect. Yeah. That so was... I think, that, like, in some ways... Oh, go ahead. No, 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 you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was just going to say, in some ways, I mean, the, the fact that this is so mild for a lot of people makes it worse, because it means that we're going to be spreading it to at-risk populations without even knowing. Yeah, like, I was going to pig off of what you were just saying, where, like, you were sick the other month. Back in February, me and my friend Tori were both absolutely so sick like I had not been this sick in a while like I had I'm pretty sure I had fever I didn't have a thermometer in my apartment but I had the stereotypical like chills and sweats and everything I did have a voice for two weeks afterwards I was hacking up a lung I couldn't handle just like a simple like walk down to my class or something so I ended up staying home because of it which was probably for the better but she thinks that she exposed me and got me sick. And then I got one of my other roommates also super sick. And she said that she hadn't felt that sick in a while since she had pneumonia last year. So us three are all saying, like, do we think that we had it? Like, did we somehow get it? Because we had all the symptoms that I mentioned. And I got tested for the flu. They said that I tested negative for the flu. I said it was so much worse than a cold. Like, this is no cold that I had before. And the right. the nurse over at health services was just saying, like, I don't know, I think I think maybe you just got like an awful case of a cold, like a lot of people are having this right now. And that was I've just been thinking about that nonstop for the past couple of weeks. Like I could have had it and just not known. 
But also, yeah. there are also so many people, like you were saying before, who are completely asymptomatic. Like, they have no idea that they have it. They're just spreading all around. And next thing you know, people in their life are getting severely sick to a point where they need the ventilator and everything. And they just don't know how they got it. They've been living at home. Like, they haven't had any visitors outside, like, their family and all of that. Like, where did they get it from? Like, their family members aren't sick. Like, yeah. How do you trace it in that sense? So that's where you get into like the South Korea, just testing absolutely everyone, doing the tracing and trying to figure out how we got it. We clearly don't have the capacity to do that. We barely have testing capacity right now. And that could be a really good way to try and stop this and slow it down as much as possible. But not enough is being done right now. I agree. And I think we're going to move in that direction. I think in, you know, the next month or so, once we, once hopefully we catch up enough and we have supplies, I think that's what needs to happen. Mass testing. Yes. Otherwise definitely. people won't know that they had it. And I think hopefully eventually they can develop some kind of, you know, antibody test so they can see if people have already had it and now maybe they're immune or I don't know exactly. I don't think we know if people get immune to the virus after already having it, but if that's the case, that'll also give us data on, okay, what percent of the population had it and is okay what percent of the population hasn't had it. And we can make more informed policy decisions based on that. You know, do we, to what extent do we need social distancing? Like, can some people go out while other people stay home? Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, we just don't have the data right now. And I think that's, again, like, that's a policy failure in a lot of ways, because we, we did, you know, we dismissed the pandemic team. Um, we didn't have people in place to, to monitor the situation in the early stages and, and, you know, hopefully respond early as opposed to what we're doing now. Yeah, like, I genuinely believe that if we still did have the pandemic team, and also if we had a much more competent administration, it's not just the president, it's everyone who's around him, everyone has a blame in this. If we had a much more competent administration, we had the pandemic team, I completely believe that we would have been like South Korea and have done the mass testing and containment to make sure that this hadn't had spread as far as it did. And just, this is just a complete and utter failure. And I hope people look back on this and realize what needs to be done in this case, and also look back on how we were able to stifle so many other possible pandemics. Like SARS didn't really come into this country and cause a massive issue like it did over in Southeast Asia. And what was that thanks to? It was thanks to a much more competent administration who understood what needed to be done. Like Ebola did not become the massive issue that it did. Like, like you were saying, like part of it was probably because Ebola is pretty much a death sentence when you get it. And this isn't necessarily that like people can just walk around and spread this and not know. But I, I think that so much more could have been done and we would not be seeing our homes right now. Yeah, I think if we had a more proactive administration, things would have been a lot better. Yeah. But anyways, I think we're we're about at time. So I don't know if you had any other like last minute notes. I think we covered a lot. Yeah, no, we definitely did. Um, pretty much just stay safe, stay healthy. Hopefully better things come. Keep your mind up. Yeah, stay home and social distance. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you.